danger is stealing in as relapse comes above the den. It's Hello and welcome to episode 360 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by today's guest, a name I'm sure most of you uh, will be familiar with, Kathy Liebert. Uh, I didn't actually check in with her where she is right now, so I can't give you her location, but uh, we had a fantastic conversation. Uh, it was really the first time that we had spoken. We played together, and we talk about this at the beginning of the interview. Uh, we played together in the 2019 main event at the day of at the end of day one. Uh, Norm McDonald was also at our table, um, so we we chatted a little bit immediately after that day because we you know that was the end of the day. So you know we, we had a few minutes uh, while we were waiting to to bag and whatnot, and and we got to know each other a little bit. But um, I got the sense that we're we're pretty simpatico in terms of. Uh, I don't know, just our, our beings in the world. I, I felt a certain kinship with her. I hope that uh, she felt the same. And it was an interesting conversation anyway. Um, kind of went back and forth between, uh, she shared a lot of memories and experiences from the pre-boom poker days, uh, like the 90s and the early 2000s before poker had really taken off and we had the World Poker Tour and we had the whole card cameras on ESPN back when the, the poker world was a different place. And, you know, she's one of the few people who have straddled that and is still in the game today and still competing at, uh, at a high level in the game today. And you know, we talk about that as well, about what kinds of skills uh, that, that kind of experience or experience in general, um, in, w in what situations is, is that useful and how can you supplement that and what are the advantages and disadvantages relative to the more, I guess, contemporary kind of solver-informed uh, strategy, and uh, you know, unsurprisingly, I think the answer is that the the best case scenario is, is a blending of both. And we talk some about what that looks like as well. You know, when to uh, rely on your instincts or experience, and when it's going to be more useful to. Um, play a more kind of unexploitable or, or solver-based strategy, and, and also how working with solvers and, and studying with game theory can help to improve your instincts. Uh, I think that has certainly been the case for myself. So uh, there is some strategy discussion in this episode. Um, I'm kind of rushing to get this out because I know it's been a little while since we've done one. So um, I'm not going to have a separate strategy segment here in the intro. Uh, you can, of course, if you want to hear lots of Thinking Poker strategy, subscribe to Thinking Poker Daily uh, at patreon.com slash thinking poker daily uh, and that will get you uh, depending on which which tier you subscribe to uh, up to five days a week of strategy segments from uh, myself Carlos and Nate Mavis some combination of the three of us every day uh, and you can hear us talk just pure strategy there none of this rambling like you're getting right now um, you can of course also find uh, lots of my strategy videos on tournament poker edge where I make videos uh, you know, if you want a lot of in-depth strategy from me, um, you can contact me about one-on-one -on -one coaching, or I also make uh, custom videos where you can send me a hand history or just some questions you have or a database or whatever, and I'll record a video with my commentary on top of those things. So you can contact me uh, at Thinking Poker on Twitter, or email me, Andrew, at thinkingpoker.net. If you are curious about any of those things, again, number one best way to get strategy from us and to support the podcast is patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. Now, please enjoy my interview with the legend, Kathy Liebert. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for uh, for joining me and, and agreeing to do this. I know we first talked about it way back in uh, in twenty nineteen. We were at the same WSOP uh, main event along with Norm McDonald, of all people. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're finally making it happen. 
Yeah, it was interesting playing with you. I, I remember. I, I remember. I was saying, "Like, oh, you're Andrew." You're like, "What? How do you know that?" <laughs> so, yeah, that was yeah, quite startling to me that I was on your radar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the beard gave you away. I told you, you had a tail. <laughs> <laughs> if, you had, if you didn't have the beard, I might not have recognized you. So maybe you'll keep that in mind. Do you still have the beard now? Oh yeah, but uh, I mean, quarantine is the perfect time for a beard. It's, it's scragglier than ever. Okay, so you're looking like ZZ Top or Grizzly Adams or something. Yeah, I, I wish I had quite that. Um, it's, mine, mine's not as full as theirs, but yeah, that's that's the aspiration. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting table. Norm McDonald was certainly fun to play with. Uh, you were not as fun to play with. You seem to be playing very well. I didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's a high high praise. Do you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that table? Do you have any observations or remembrances from that? T- I mean, hey, it's well, really I the. Bluff, tried to bluff off my chips in the spot. It didn't look very good. Come to think of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. I mean, I think I. Um, I'm sure I took notes on that. I mean, the, the the main takeaways for me were just like, and I think it's such a classic WSOP experience of, um, of I mean, a playing with like a celebrity, right? So playing with someone like Norm Macdonald, who I grew up like watching on TV for for totally different reasons, and then all of a sudden you're just like sitting around a poker table with him and he's just one of the guys um or mm-hmm. one of the one of the people sorry. <laughs> um and then uh yourself you know like you you were a, a figure um i, really, I mean i don't, I don't want to say hero but you were one of the of, of the sort of like people who were professionals at the time that i like poker was kind of first starting to come on my radar and i was paying attention to like i gravitated more to uh quieter people like um yourself or uh uh, Eric Seidel is a good example. Alan Cunningham, like, I, like that. That was always like I was not a big fan of like Helmuth and Negreanu or, or the people who had like the really big, loud personalities. Yeah, I, I had more respect for people like yourself. So it was, um, it was neat. You know, you were also a person. I was like, oh, I've seen that person, you know, play poker on TV so many times, and now here we are sitting uh, sitting across the same table as just. Yeah, that must have been the first time we played. I don't remember playing with you before that. Although I don't think so, and, and I think I would have remembered at least playing in person. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I remember. I mean, I, I remember I played a, a big pot with uh, with Norm, where I like kind of check raised the flop and, and bet the turn, sort of as a bluff. But then like ended up calling his river bet. I didn't quite eliminate him, but um, mm-hmm. that was that was like a, a big bet, a pretty like you know like the sort of thing that you yeah. can do against more um, a more recreational player. Mm-hmm. That's the main pot that I remember from from. I know you and I did play one together, but I, I don't remember the details to be honest. Yeah, I don't either. So I remember the hand where I had the where the guy had the aces and he called me down and I was like, "Whoops!" I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they don't like to fold aces. <laughs> well, I didn't know he had a hand that good, so that was a little ambitious on my part. Although I did consider folding, I was like, "Man, what is he thinking about? What does he have?" I didn't know they had aces. I had no idea. <laughs> he Which, played it slow. Um, he kind of was played it like he didn't have aces, so I tried to represent a stronger hand since I was taking the initiative. Yeah. How many how many main events have you played now? I think I've played every one since either ninety five or ninety six. Wow. So that's twenty five ish. That sounds about right. I've actually cashed it quite a few times too. <laughs> yeah, congratulations on that. Well, cashing is not as good as winning, but it's <laughs> well, not not very many people get that. Not not many people get to win the main event. That's true. And yeah. you've had your share of wins. Uh, yeah, I've had a lot of seconds, especially at the WSOP and other big, and other big tournaments like, uh, you know, the WPT. I came second as well. But um, yeah, I've won some small tournaments here and there over the years. <laughs> How did you get started in in poker? Like, what um, did did you grow up playing poker? How did it come onto your radar? Uh, I remember we did have little nickel-dime quarter family home games where we played poker, and I remember that uh, I had bought a book called How to Win at Poker or something like that, and I didn't remember too much of what the book was. You know, I, I don't know how much I studied the book, but I remember that in the inside cover of the book, I had all my nickels, dimes, and quarters added up and kind of like you know, <laughs> how I was winning and stuff like that. You, know, uh, you don't, you don't still have that, that, do you? Know, if I can. <laughs> so that was kind of my mentality from a young age was I guess I was always competitive, always liked games. And I did like poker, and I remember thinking, oh, wow, I can make money at this? I can win, you know, so that was, it was very intriguing from a young age, although I wouldn't say that I played at a high level at that age, although I probably held my own considering everything. 
Um, and like, when did it become, I mean, when did you get the idea? Like I could actually make a living doing this. So, um, I graduated college. I had no, mo- no poker in the mind at all. I didn't know about online poker or anything about where you could play poker. And I wasn't thinking about poker. I'd gone to the casino when I first turned 21 just for fun and, you know, discovered blackjack. And I don't think I discovered poker at that time. Uh, but I, you know, I was like the idea of making money. So, uh, but anyway, I, um, I had graduated college and went to work for Dun & Bradstreet as a business analyst in New York. And I did that for a little over a year. And my boss said something to me like, if you keep working this hard, you'll get promoted. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, promoted to what? What am I doing here? What do I want to do? <laughs> you know, I mean, like he thought it was a motivating thing. Yeah, keep working 50 hours a week and, you know, you'll make progress. And I was like, no, I think I'm just going to leave. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> That's not what I said. I said, you can get promoted. So anyway, so I quit the job without really having any plan or anything like that. I sat home for a couple of months wondering what I was going to do. Didn't, you know, I should have, you know, I, I, I thought maybe I could get another job, but I really wasn't motivated to look. Mm-hmm. So I wound up going out to California and uh, hanging out in California for a little while. Thought about going to law school. And then I said, well, let me go check out Colorado. I want to go skiing. Went to Colorado and I discovered uh, that it was kind of nice there, pretty expensive. They had skiing and they had, you know, so I just decided to move to Colorado with no real plan or job or anything. And then I discovered that they had $5 poker in the casinos in the mountains about an hour from my house or an hour from my apartment. So I started going up there, and that's how it started. <laughs> and that would be like early 90s? Yeah, that was like 1991, 1990, 91, 91 I believe. So how, how recognizable would it be? I mean, it's, I, I went to my first casino probably like the early 2000s. Um, uh, if I walked into a poker room in, in the early 90s, how different would that look to me compared to what I'm used to seeing these days? Well, when I walked in, this was in Colorado, Blackhawk, Colorado. I walked in and there was like three tables there. And it was a little intimidating. I didn't know what was going on or what was, you know, I just was like, you know, walked in and I was like, didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do. You know, and I wound up sitting down in a, you know, they wound up sitting me down in a poker game. Mm-hmm. It was $5 stud eight or better. And um, that was basically my start. And, you know, besides nickel dime quarter when I was a kid, that was basically my first uh, experience playing uh, live poker. And you hadn't, um, I assume you hadn't really like read up on study strategy or anything. You just sort of, oh, I've played poker before. Let's see what happens. Um, I did wind up going to the gambler's bookstore in, in Denver and buying a lot of books. I don't know <laughs> if it was before the first time. It was probably after the first time. I think what happened is I played the study a better game a few times and didn't do very well. And I remember even there was a guy in the game that was like, what are you doing here? Who are you? You know, kind of like, you know, he's like, he's like, he's like, do you know how to play this game? He was kind of like trying to tell me that I wasn't playing right, but I didn't quite, you know, know what he wanted or what he was saying to me. <laughs> so, uh, but he seemed like the expert in the game, the resident expert or the resident player or the prop type player. I think it was even a prop player or, you know, so he was, you know, um, but yeah, I wound up going to the bookstore and buying books, but I didn't wind up buying books on study to better. I wound up buying books about tournaments and hold them and things like that. So were there that many poker books in, like, 1991? There was not very many, no. I bought what I found. Uh, I bought a couple Tom McAvoy books mm-hmm. and uh, whatever else was there. Um, and I wound up actually buying a book called um, something about tournament poker. And when I read that, I was like, oh, this looks interesting. So when I had a chance to go to my first tournament in 1984, the Gold Coast, the Orleans, I was like, hey, let me study this book and go do that. Wow. Um, and so at least according to Wikipedia, you were a prop player yourself for a little bit? Yeah. So after I started playing in Central City and Blackhawk, uh, I took a job as a prop. I think they paid me $10 an hour. And it was not a very good job because when the game was good, they told you to leave. And the game, <laughs> and when the game was short and nobody wanted to play, they're like, okay, now you play. So I realized it wasn't a very good deal after a while. But uh, that kind of, you know, it kind of it gave me the experience of playing under different circumstances in different games and you know, they just put you wherever they wanted to put you, and you just had to play if you was heads up or three-handed or whatever, whoever wanted to play. And uh, if there's more people that wanted to play the game, then they said, oh, you have to wait. You have to, you have to get up from your seat and watch. And I'm like, this is not this is yeah. not <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think about uh, dealing? Uh, I was actually starting to go to some home games in Denver, four-rate home games and stuff like that. And I was playing in the game, and we, they, pl- they were playing Omaha, Ada Better, and mixed games, which I had not been familiar with at all. 
And at first, I, you know, obviously you're not going to be great at those games against people that have been playing for years when we first time. And they were like, well, you can deal if you want. You know, so they put me in the box and I started dealing. And they're like, you're doing it wrong. I'm like, what do you mean I'm doing it wrong? I'm, <laughs> I put the cards are going where they're supposed to go. Everything is fine. They're like, no, you can't hold your wrist like that. You got to do this and everything. And I'm like, you know what? This is not for me. There were too many instructions <laughs> and too many ways. I, was, I mean, I was having fun doing it until they said that I had to do it a different way and hold my wrist straight and. I was not trained to do that, so I said, let me go back to the other side again. I didn't want to deal. <laughs> and I mean, obviously, as a woman, you're still in the minority, I'm sure, in, in any poker room that you walk into. Was that even more dramatic in, in the 90s? Like, when you walked into, into Blackhawk, I imagine just, like, seeing a, an unfamiliar face at all was probably a little uncommon for them. But I'm, I'm thinking maybe you stood out even more being a woman. I don't know. I mean, I just, you know, I, I was kind of like not very, I mean, I just kind of sat down and started playing, you know, and I didn't mm-hmm. even think about it. Like I said, the one guy was like, who are you? You know, what is, what's going on here? You know, like, yeah. you know, so, uh, but, you know, I didn't really think about any of that stuff. I wasn't about men or women or comfortable. I just, you know, I wanted to play the game and, you know, so it was, yeah, it wasn't, an un- I wasn't uncomfortable at all in the idea of, of sitting down and playing the game. And I didn't think about whether they were, you know, uncomfortable. Or, I mean, I don't think they're uncomfortable. I think they actually kind of were trying to help me a little bit. They would like mm-hmm. say, "Oh, that's not a very good hand." And I'm like, "What do you mean it's not a good hand?" <laughs> I won, so, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would just play whatever. I mean, I didn't have any. Uh, obviously, I didn't have any great skill or knowledge about uh, studied or better at that time. And yeah, the guy kind of did. Kind of, a couple people did kind of tell me, um, you know, that I wasn't playing great or I should play differently or I should play more low cards and less high cards and, you know, things like that. You know, I don't know how much they really taught me, but at least told me a little bit enough to realize that, you know, I want you know, to, to make me realize that if I didn't want to play, you know, the way I was initially playing. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess just to give you the idea that that information is is out there at all, right? You know, the like, I mean, maybe you knew that already, but just the idea that you know some hands are like better than others, or is I think certain things before you've really started thinking about poker strategy at all. I think like the the importance of you know starting hand selection or whatever is maybe not so obvious. Right, I think that after I had realized that I wasn't a great studied or better player, that I did go into the bookstore and you know and look for books and things like that and try to try to learn about what, you know, about poker and whatever I could learn about the game and, you know, try to improve. And I did improve uh, mm-hmm. over time, obviously. So was there like a definitive moment where you said, okay, I'm, I'm going pro? Or, I mean, it, it kind of sounds like you just sort of were a little directionless and started doing poker and it has kind of continued to work out for you. Uh, yeah, I didn't really make a conscious decision to play pro. I remember when I was playing in Colorado, I was doing doing okay and I, making enough to pay the rent and everything. And I said to my friend, who was uh, who was a prop player and a very he was considered like one of the best players, and he'd been around a long time and everything. I said, "Can I actually make a living this? Can I make enough money to survive off of this?" And he thought for a little while. He said, "Well, you could make enough to survive, but you're not going to make you're not going to make a fortune or anything. You know, you're not going to you know you, if you if you play well, you can make enough, but you're not going to make a lot. You know, that was basically his answer. I was like, hmm, okay. But then uh, they, they they told me about this tournament coming up, and uh, that kind of changed everything when I went to my first tournament. You just really enjoyed that that format. Uh, well, I did really well the first week. I was oh, playing, okay. I was playing <laughs> half games on the side, and I was thinking about skipping the tournament. I'm like, this is a this is fun playing like this limit hold'em game that I was playing. I was like, I was gonna go play that Gold Coast tournament, but maybe I'll just skip it. And a couple, the dealer said, no, you should go play it. Yeah, why not? Go give it a shot. And I went, and I came second. Actually, I chopped it. I got heads up, but I didn't even know what chopping it was. The guy said, you want to chop it? I'm like, what's that? And we were about <laughs> even in chips, and we've been playing for like 12 hours. And uh, I was like, I don't know, you know, it was, just, it was all new to me. And uh, so we wound up chopping that one. And then uh, I went back to the casino. I was like, wow, that tournament thing is all right. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, so then I went back a week later and came, uh, chopped another one. So like $34,000 in my first week playing tournaments. And that kind of uh, made me want to play more tournaments. You know, it. People who listen to the show have heard me comment on this before, but you know, I, I ask a lot of people about their their origin stories, and the number of people who have a story who are you know successful professional players now who have a story like that of just like, oh, I just ran insanely well in the first tournament I ever played, or you know, won the first tournament, took second in the first tournament, and um, I, I think we have there's such a big survivorship bias in you know, who are the professional players now or who are the really good players now. Probably a lot of people who had a lot of potential just like didn't run well early in their career and were like, poker is stupid, and just went. Did something else. I mean, there was a guy that used to crush the No Limit tournaments that I haven't seen or heard from in a long time, although I, he may still be around a little bit in California or something. Uh, Thomas Chung. Does that name sound familiar to you? No, I don't think so. Yeah, he used to be a crusher, uh, you know, but 
so yeah, a lot of there was obviously a lot of good players. The players that were good, very successful back in the '90s. Uh, you don't see them very much anymore for one reason mm-hmm. or another. I mean, I assume you had to move though. Like you weren't able to, to play professionally and, and keep playing in that five dollar game at Blackhawk. Well, we started. There were home games also, so okay. I played in some four eight games and some and some bigger games. Uh, yeah, I started playing in more of the home games instead of the five dollar limit after a while. And uh, yeah, I mean, some days I'd do really well. Sometimes I wouldn't. You know, I was still. Uh, but yeah, I did that for about since through ninety one through early ninety four, mid ninety four, and then when I after I had that tournament score, uh, I started traveling to the tournaments. I started going to California and Vegas for for more tournaments, mm-hmm. and that's when I basically started, you know, doing the tournament circuit or whatever the scene at the time, and and I stopped playing cash games for the most part, which you know I just I got hooked on the tournaments, and you know I had a lot of ups and downs as tournament players will and volatility along the way, but uh, I managed to. Um, to not go broke and survive and keep playing. So, <laughs> and what did the tournament circuit look like then? I mean, how how big were the events, and did you recognize most of the people that you saw? They were very s- small. Uh, <laughs> I know I was looking through my scrapbook a couple days ago and uh, looking through the, the 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 first year or two of of tournaments and stuff like that. They used to do write ups and everything, and so you, you know, uh, and one write up was a hundred dollar or two hundred dollar Omaha Ada Better tournament with like forty something players. I came first for four thousand. Chris Jesus Ferguson came fourth for like three hundred or four hundred dollars. <laughs> so that was uh, that was like wow. <laughs> <laughs> How many of the I names? Another one with Mike Sexton, where uh, we I came third in Omaha Ada Better tournament, and he got first, and first was like six thousand dollars. Marsha Wagner came second, and I remember that tournament. It was nineteen ninety four. It was one of my early tournaments, uh, but I was chip leader by a lot, three handed, and I just kept you know, playing aggressively and Mike Sexton just, you know, started beating me and, you know, he wound up getting all my chips and it was like, you know, cause I played too aggressively and, but, uh, I hadn't had a lot of experience playing shorthanded. Oh, I had a better at that time either. <laughs> <laughs> How many of the people who, who were regulars then, like you mentioned Sexton and, and Ferguson, uh how many how many names do you think would still be recognizable from people who you know you knew from traveling the circuit in 94 and mid 90s? Well, I would. I did actually see some of the tournament results sheets, and a lot mm-hmm. of them are you're not going to see anymore these days. Obviously, uh, a few obviously stand out as being you know their early start of their career along with me, like Alan Cunningham, John Juanda, um, Chris Ferguson, uh, Mike Sexton. Uh, you know those names uh, stood out as being the ones that would still. Uh, and then in '96, I met Daniel Negreanu actually, and that was interesting uh, because I met him like one of his first tournaments, and I was actually staking a friend of his, and Daniel didn't have a lot of money but he was very cocky and confident he's like well you're staking my friend but i wouldn't want to get staked you know meanwhile he didn't have any money he probably just <laughs> like, you know too cocky to admit it or whatever you know he's like you know oh, oh what's this about you know he kind of like you know you could tell he was interested in it but he was like oh no i don't need that you know so and uh, obviously he 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 was yeah he, he i actually knew he was pretty good pretty early on just you know just seeing his attitude and everything were there um, I mean, did you have like a, a crew that you kind of fell in with? No, not really. I was more of a loner. I did kind of hang out with Daniel Negreanu, John Juanda, Alan Cunningham, and at some point Phil Ivey joined for a little bit, a little while. But they were more of a crew by themselves. And every once in a while, I would I would kind of hook up with them. So there was I was kind of an outsider in that group. But I would mm-hmm. once in a while, uh, you know, I mean, you know, I, I'd occasionally join the group. But for the most part, they were their own group, and I was kind of just uh, doing my own thing. So you were not, um, you didn't have like people that you were really regularly talking strategy with. You were just kind of figuring things out for yourself and reading books, trial and error. Uh, I did meet Tom McAvoy and I would talk to him some about poker and stuff like that. I had read his books. And uh, so we discussed some strategy, although he always disagreed with me. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like, I'd be like, well, you know, I could re-raise with this hand. He's like, no, that's not a good hand to re-raise with. You know, so my, my instincts right away were to do kind of like that solver kind of thing where I was re-raising with bad hands. And he was like, no, don't do that. I'm like, but I think it would have worked. Like, no, you don't re-raise with 4-3 suited, you know. I'm like, but I don't think they would have going to call me. He's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm like, that sucks. <laughs> So, yeah, I had that kind of aggressive tendencies kind of early on, you know. So your first WSAP, you said, was 96? Uh, I think it was 95 or 96, yeah. Okay. What was, what, did that feel similar to the, the series events, or did that have kind of a more of the circuit, or did that have more of like a more elevated feel to it? 
more elevated back in the old days. I mean, back mm. in the old days, um, you know, they were doing write-ups and there was brochures and you could see the winner's photos. And I was like, wow, Ted Forrest won three tournaments? Oh, my, wow, he's the greatest. <laughs> and then I went and played Omaha with him and I'm like, wait a minute, this is the guy that won three tournaments? You know, I was very, <laughs> I was not, I was impressed with the results, but I wasn't impressed, impressed with the play because, I mean, he knew, he played it differently than anybody I had ever played it with, you know? Yeah, I played with Ted Forrest early in my career and had a similar reaction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Professor Backwards. I didn't know the backwards part. I only knew the forwards part. You know, at that time, I didn't understand how you could play a different strategy and work and have it work. But uh, he did make it work, and that was that was uh, eye opening for me to, to you know thinking that he was this greatest player and then playing so differently than the way I played or thought I should she should play. <laughs> How noticeable was it to you? I mean, obviously, like at, at some point, the poker just kind of blew up. Um, how how quickly did that happen from from your perspective? Was it just like overnight the poker rooms were much more crowded than they had been? No, it took a long time. I mean, I started playing tournaments in 1994, and it probably really didn't start until the WPT started, which <laughs> was the year after I won that party poker. They had done the televised for the Travel Channel. Steve Lipscomb filmed it. And the next year, 2003... The WPT started, and that's when it started to get bigger, and that's when we had all the, a lot more $10,000 events. You know, it used to be, you know, I was playing $100, $200, $300 tournaments on average. You know, sometimes you get a $500 or $1,000, that would be a big tournament. You know, and then when the WPT started, there was $10,000 tournament once a month or so. Mm-hmm. So that that's changed a lot, uh, and I started playing bigger tournaments and traveling to WPTs at that time. And did you have the the bankroll for that, or did you have to do? I mean, did you get like staking or you know swap pieces? Like, what what did the the financing situation look like back then? No, I didn't have a backer. I didn't I didn't know too much about backers or look for a backer. Or nobody offered me at that time. Uh, so I was playing mostly satellites to get in. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I did have a little bit of a bankroll from you know from uh, money management and stuff like that. But yeah, mostly I would just play the satellites and win you know win a seat or two and try to get in that way. But uh, as I got, as as I started having a little bit of success, I started playing less satellites. But you know, in the beginning, I did play a lot of satellites and and did well in those. Yeah, and and the idea of like swapping percentages with somebody, which I think is is quite common now, was that was that around? Was, you know, were you aware of that happening, or did you participate in that? Not really. I mean, I was kind of on my own a lot, to be honest. You know, I didn't like you said, I didn't really have like a group of people that I hung out with or swapped with or anything like that. Um, so it didn't really come up hardly ever. I mean, once in a while, somebody might say, well, I trade 1%. And that was unusual. I was like, what? Huh? You know, it wasn't something <laughs> I thought about much. Or did, you know, so, um, you know, I remember turning down Phil Gordon when he said, you want to trade 1%. Uh, oh, I remember the first year in the WSP main event, and he said, I'll give you two of me for one of you. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And the <laughs> next year, he said, I'll get, oh, no, let's trade 1% again. And I was like, oh, what about the deal that I had last year? <laughs> and so he, he didn't say two for one, so I didn't do it. And then he wound up making the final table that year. And I was like, oh, man. I <laughs> you know, I just, you know, I just think he wasn't as good of a deal as the year before. But <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, occasionally it would happen, you know. And then I started saying to people, oh, you want to trade 1% every once in a while? But it was more of a just a fun sweat kind of thing. It wasn't really a, something, something I did very often. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you prefer? Do, do you do you have a, a favorite game now? Yeah, I mean, I play mostly Nolan and Hold'em these days. I really don't play a lot of the other games. But that's uh, I mean, like I feel like that's sort of um, you kind of have to, you know. Like, is that is would that be your preference, or would you love it if if the whole poker world decided they wanted to play like 08 or something? Uh, no, I think I'm better off in No Limit. I think I like it the best. Um, I did like Pot Limit and Pot Limit Omaha, Pot Limit, Omaha, Pot Limit uh, Hold'em, and Pot Limit Omaha Ada better. I kind of thought those games were interesting, but mm-hmm. I never played them a lot or studied them a lot or anything like that. So uh, I used to do really well at Omaha Ada better in my first five years, six years playing poker. That was my Limit, limit Omaha Ada better and uh, Limit Hold'em were my you know, was where I started off being successful, but now I really don't play those games very much. I don't feel as competitive in those games as I would have felt back in the early days playing them. And your um the one big win you had the, the party poker tournament that was a limit hold'em tournament, right? Yeah, yep. Everything was pretty much limit before. You know, I mean, I did start playing some no limit actually at the Gold Coast tournaments, and I did like it and start playing it more. So I mean, I was I was only playing limit, I guess. When there was no other options. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Uh, so I, I told people on Twitter that I was going to be, as, well, as you know, because you were one of the people who responded to this, um, that I was going to be uh, talking with you. And um, I you know, have a couple questions from on there. Um, I'm certainly curious about this one as well. Uh, JMC PGH was curious about uh, old school WSOP memories, uh, maybe especially the 2000 main event, which people would know from the book, Positively Fifth Street. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I actually, my first, the main event, the, my first main event that I was successful in was 1998, um, where uh, Scotty won it. Mm-hmm. And I, I was doing well on that one. I was at Scotty's table, and I had two nines. I flopped a set, and he hit kings, and he, he hit three kings. And, uh, you know, I got 17th in that one. And that was very memorable. I remember somebody interviewing me right after, and I was still, like, in shock. You know, I was like, what, like, what happened? You know, how do you feel? I'm like, you know, that was my first real WSFP main event experience that uh really kind of um you know and scotty well you know he was quite the character obviously and still is um and in 2000 um yeah i played with jim mcmanus but i really didn't know who he was at that time or much about him or anything like that so it didn't stand Mm -hmm. out uh about the book you know that he was writing the book didn't really um you know i I guess i was aware a little bit there was interviewing people and stuff like that but uh i don't remember a lot about that tournament to be honest uh I, I was chip leader actually going into like day three or four. Um, so I guess I do remember that. And I remember losing a big pot and, and uh, <laughs> everyone was winning with ace nine versus ace queen that year. If you had the ace, <laughs> nine ace queen, the nine kept hitting. And that happened before the final table. It was interesting that I wound up being at the final table. I think ace nine and ace queen was one of the big, one of the big hands, uh, Ferguson versus, um, TJ and, and Chris heard a nine. I'm like, wow, a freaking nine again. This is going to happen all the time. You know, I was like, you made a comment. Like, I think, I don't even know if I've made the TV. It was like, ace nine is better than ace queen. You should play ace nine every time. <laughs> I think it made the TV at least once, you know, when I, you know, because somebody told me, oh, I know you like ace nine better than ace queen. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yes. And then they would beat me with the ace nine. I'm like, you told me this was right. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I did say ace nine is always wins. But yeah, those are, that was my memory of that tournament. <laughs> Ace nine and uh, being chip leader, and then getting getting beat pretty early. Actually, I mean, you know, I wound up finishing seventeenth in that one too. Seventeenth in ninety eight and seventeenth in two thousand. <laughs> I was wow. I was consistent. <laughs> <laughs> are there things that you miss from those early like early WSOPs or just early days of poker? You know, that that aren't really uh, part of the poker scene now. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I was looking through my old scrapbook and. We had write-ups of every tournament, and they were talking about who was there and what players were doing, and you know, and, and a little bit about their background and pictures. And oh, if you won, you got a big trophy, and you got your picture in, you know, at a write-up and everything. And I've saved all those write-ups. I have write-ups from 1994, 95, 96 uh, brochures from the WSOP from back in '98, you know. And it was just like exciting. It was like, oh wow, I want my picture in this brochure. I want to, I want to be the one they're featuring in the middle of the magazine. You know, and, you know, they had a th- section on women in poker and, you know, and all oh, they mentioned my name and they had Susie Isaac's picture. And I was like, oh, I want my picture there next to, you know, so it was kind of like it was motivating because th- there was a feeling of success and glory. And, you know, and now, you know, I can't even get the winner's results. I tried to get the winner's results from a win tournament, you know, a big win tournament, and it wasn't even posted. I couldn't even find it anywhere. You know, Forget- there was no write up. There was no nothing, you know. Yeah. Um. Cat X Martin just wrote cats. <laughs> Do you have thoughts on cats? I like cats. I have cats. Cats are cool. <laughs> um, Dan Abrams, whose name is Dr. Raz WSOP, says, uh, Raz, yay or nay? I actually liked it, but I never play it anymore. But yeah, when I first played it, I enjoyed it. I liked the game. But, yeah, uh, I, I feel the same way. I've, I've played Raz WSOP event a couple of times. I don't think I'm a favorite in it, but it's one of the, you know, I let myself play one or two for fun that I'm not necessarily a favorite in. Yeah, I actually did wind up playing guy Raz heads up early, very early on because I was in a Raz tournament with him and he said, you suck at Raz. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, you're the worst. I'm like, let's go play. Let's play heads up. He's like, all right, I'll play you any day of the week, you know. So we got so we bought some chips, went up to the hotel room and we played Raz heads up. And after, I don't know how many hours it was, we, it was supposed to be a freeze-out. He was like, I don't want to play anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you can't quit, you know? He's like, yeah, I want to quit. So he wound up quitting because he thought that I was a bad Raz player because I was playing 
not the greatest starting hands. I wasn't waiting for like ace deuce three or four five three or you know I was playing like a nine up you know and he was like you know you don't do that and uh, I'm like well you know maybe you can maybe you can't but <laughs> let's see <laughs> let's find out what happens. Uh, Yaga Smurf asks, uh, "What are the most broken tournament rules that need to be fixed?" Well, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that one. Broken tournament rules? Um, hmm. I'd have to think about it. I can't. I mean, broken tournament rules. <laughs> this I is. Mean, uh, I some, but I don't know. Not off the top of my head, nothing comes to mind. This is obviously pretty specific to this year. But have you seen the um, the WSOP? Uh, the COVID disqualification rules. Yeah, I did see that. And I saw a lot of people saying that they weren't going to play or it was very, uh, you know, the WSOP is dead, that kind of thing. So that was not, uh, didn't seem good. The reactions were not good and the statement was not good. Um, I'm hoping that everything works out and that everything's fine. But Yeah, I will say my, my optimism on that front has gone down a lot in the last week. Um, I was like fully planning on, on going out there this year, and I'm starting to have some some doubts about that. I mean, partly just the, the COVID situation in general, but then partly I don't know how many people are going to be driven away by um, by rules like that one and, and the mask rule and, and that kind of thing. I feel like it might not be that great of an event this year. Yeah, I hope not. I hope they either change it or figure something out or you know work it. You know, something that works out. Uh, I'm I was planning on playing the WSRP, and I still am, um, regardless of what the rules are. I'd probably like to play it. Uh, I don't think that those rules are really going to be as enforced as it sounds, you know, like it sounds scary or they can remove you for any time. And don't. Get yeah, like I was that. thinking the but, same thing, uh, but I don't really think they're going to be doing that very much or I don't think it's going to be as it's, it's probably not going to be as big of a concern as people are making it out to be right now. I mean, they always have the right to remove you if they want to remove you, you know, I mean, right. uh, you know, I mean, normally you have to do something really wrong to get an order to get removed. So it's scary that you don't have to do anything wrong to get removed. But. Uh, yeah, I think that it's very unlikely they would actually be using that very much, or that it would only come up, that it would come up, or just because you were in contact with somebody with COVID doesn't mean you're going to get ex- you know disqualified from the tournament. So t- maybe they need to clear it up or change the rules or who knows what. But um, I'm hoping that it's still good this year and uh, that it goes. Yeah, I think that that's about where I am also. Uh, Scott, Fitz, Scott Fitzhugh asked, uh, perspective, insights, and highlights from a 25-plus year career. Uh, what she likes most about the game and what she hates most about the game. Hmm. Um, I like winning. <laughs> <laughs> I like it when I win. I hate it when I lose. Uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, <laughs> that's deep. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I still like to win more than I like to lose. Um, you know, it's you know the game has changed a lot, and honestly, I don't like it as much as I used to like it. Um, you know, I don't like the GTO and the solvers and the and the guys, you know, playing like a machine or having a chart against. You know, I just you know I'd rather just play it the old way, where you kind of looked at a person and you got to read and you got to feel and you said, okay, I don't think you have it. You know, when you raised them with whatever you had or you called with whatever you had, you know, there wasn't like, so this is what you do with this hand and this is what you do with that hand. We didn't have any of that. And I liked it better that that way. You know, we just kind of just played the game and it wasn't supposed to be a mathematically solved game. It was just you played the game and, you know, you read your opponents and you made your decisions. Yeah, one of my uh, favorite quotes from someone I've had on the show, I talked to uh, Barney Boatman a couple of years ago, and he said the first time that he saw a, uh, a solver, he said, my God, what have you done to our beautiful game? Yeah, exactly. It, it's really, it's too bad, because I think the game was more fun back in the, old, in the old days, and I think that, you know, it was more creative and more interesting, and just, you know, and it just, and people had more fun, and it was more, you know, I don't know, just... I do kind of miss the old days, uh, and it took me a while to realize that these kids were playing, you know, according to a mathematical strategy instead of just three betting me light because they thought I was a girl or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> there, there might have been some of that also. Yeah, I mean, right, it's a girl, all the reason, all ways her, she'll fold, but I didn't understand the, the theory behind it or the math behind it or what, you know, they had a, you know, a solver approach or, 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 study, or a computer approach or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it's a math computer so I guess it's based on math, right? Simulations based on math, or is it based on something else? Yeah, no, that, that's right. I mean, it's um, I, I think simulations is is the right way to put it. Like it's 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 not as simple as just trial and error. Like there is a, an algorithm to it, but essentially the the algorithm is just. Uh, uh, 
devising a strategy, testing that strategy, refining that strategy, and just sort of determining, um, continuing to try to exploit itself until it gets like closer to, and closer to a point where it can't really be exploited anymore. Yeah, I mean, most players are exploitable. Most players have, you know, don't play according to the what, you know. I mean, like, I looked at one of those charts, and it was like, oh, this is a call 100% of the time. I'm like, I'm not calling here. This is the <laughs> I've called with this hand thousands of times in my career, and it's always been a loser. Why are they, you know, why are we not going to call now? I mean, forget it. You know, throw the chart out the window and just go with my instinct that it's not a good call, and I'll just fold it, you know. <laughs> That's actually, I think that raises an interesting point of like, I mean, given how much poker has changed from, in terms of like how people play and people's understanding of, of strategy and things, uh, I mean, on the one hand, you have a tremendous amount of experience. On the other hand, I mean, do you feel like your instincts ever kind of lead you astray or maybe that like you have some instincts that are based on, um, that are maybe a little like out of date or anything? Like how, what's your relationship with instinct? Yeah, I mean, in general, uh, against the regular player, recreational player, average player, my instincts are pretty good. You know, I get a read on how I think they're playing and whether I think they're tight or aggressive, and I adjust accordingly. Mm -hmm. uh, to be honest, when these GTO kids came out and these internet kids or whatever, I didn't know what they were doing or why they were doing it, and I didn't adjust very well against it because, you know, I didn't expect them to be three-betting me with that wide of a range or, you know, with a 6-7 suited and things like that. You know, uh, it wasn't really done as much. Uh, in the old days, so I didn't know that, you know, I'd look at their hands and they'd be like, you four bet with that? Or, you know, I'd, I'd fold the hand that, you know, in the old days, they'd say it was crazy to call with, you know, after it's raised and re-raised, you don't call with two queens, you know, it's just crazy. <laughs> you know, and then people would be raising and re-raising and they'd be like, ace-jack, ace-queen, I'd be like, I got two queens, what the hell? You know, <laughs> what are you guys doing? You're stupid, you're crazy, you don't know how to play, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so that was my first reaction when I first started playing with these internet kids was they played bad and they played loose and they played aggressively, they didn't know what they were doing. You know, and it took me a while to even think about, you know, what they were doing and why they were doing it and, you know, and how to play against it and, you know, how to, how to, you know, how to, how to adjust accordingly after what I, you know, I remember back, yeah, one of my first WSFPs, it was probably 1997, Pot Limit Hold'em or something like that. It was raised and re-raised under the gun, under the gun one, I had two queens and I wound up putting my chips in. And everyone at the table said, you put your chips in against those two raisin under the gun with two queens. That's, that's terrible. That's so loose and you'll never win playing that way. And. You know, I just still remember that, you know, like the two queens was like the biggest fish play I ever made playing that hand, you know, <laughs> and now it's like two queens is the nothing for these kids, you know, so. Yeah, that was that was how I went out of my first main event. I made day four and was over the moon, of course. And then you know, I I think I three bet with queens and somebody just cold shoved. And I did have a bad feeling about it, but I was like, what am I going to do? Fold queens? And right. Like, of course, the yeah, other is, you know, it was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's one experience I actually do remember of one, in one of my WSOPs. I, I'm trying to think who the player was. I think it might have been Bobby Baldwin or one of those well-known well old-school players. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Baldwin or somebody else, but uh, I had been playing on his left all day long, and he raised in late position. I re-raised him, and he had, like, queens? or I think he had queens. I, I guess the way I acted, he showed me the queens and folded. And I had like aces and I was like, what the hell are you doing? How, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was because of the way the, the, the demand, the dynamic of it and the fact that I, I took a long time or something about it. You know, he just like, I don't think I'm going to play these queens right now. You know, he just had a read and a feel and actually he was right. You know, I was like, mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, you know, but. <laughs> Oh, this brings us to a question from Kathy Liebert. Uh, old school versus new school poker strategy, and what should we study before the WSOP? Yeah, so I still kind of like watching the old school better than new school stuff. Like if I was going to watch something, I'd watch you know, the old high-stakes poker or something like that. Or, <laughs> But uh, I realized that uh, maybe I should be studying some of the new school stuff a little bit more. Um, so what would you recommend we study or watch, or, or what kind of training would you recommend for new school yeah old school type players i think especially for for someone in your situation where it really is a question of kind of figuring out like well what what is it that a computer could possibly tell me like someone who's been who's been playing this game for so long and i think this is really good advice for how people ought to you know use like solvers or some of the other tools that exist now and i don't mean to say that you should necessarily be doing your own solver work but i think people should be studying with things that are solver derived i think there's very little reason not to these days and um i think the, the best way to use these is if you look at 
what I would call like the equilibrium solution, meaning like kind of what a solver would do in this situation. Um, the, the, your objective in looking at it is not so that you can just reproduce exactly what the solver is doing. You want to be looking at like you identified earlier, like, oh, I would never call with that error. I have called with that hand and it's always a mistake. You know, so you want to look at those things that are surprising where a computer thinks it's a good idea and it doesn't seem like a good idea to you. And then that's a place to start digging more deeply and trying to figure out, well, why does this as far as the computer is concerned, like why does the computer think this is a good play? And um, often that involves looking at, well, you know, if it's saying you should call with this, well, what does it think the other player is betting? And then you can see, you know, does that seem realistic to me? Like, do I think people are actually doing this, or do I think that maybe this is a situation where it's very difficult? Like the you know, a solver can figure out what its bluff should be in this situation, but many human players would maybe struggle to realize that they should be bluffing with some of the hands, or it could be profitable for them to bluff with some of the hands that a solver would bluff with. And so then you might conclude, okay, I feel good about my decision to fold here, even though it's not what a solver would do, because now I understand. Assuming, the solver is assuming that the other player is playing a GTO strategy or a solver type strategy, which I do not assume that. That's the that's the biggest difference. Is that you know right. a woman a woman shoves on me from the small blind, and you know when she has twenty big blinds, I have Ace Ten suited on the button. You know the solver says to call it. But I don't. I have I have experience with women shoving me out of the small blind, and they usually <laughs> have better than Ace Ten when it's for all their chips. When we're in the money, you know, when there's you know pay jumps coming up, you know, in that kind of situation, you know, I don't like calling off twenty big blinds with that hand. And so he says, "Oh no, it's an auto call." I'm like, "No, I don't think it's an auto call." Well, yeah, I think it's definitely not an auto call. Right? I mean, if, if you, so I think the times when when computer assistance is, is most useful are when you don't have that kind of read. Like if the woman making that shove is Kristen Bricknell, then like maybe that you don't want to just go and yeah. I mean, or at least you want to, you, or you would want to have a more mathematical sense of like, you know, like she's probably shoving pretty close, or maybe if she's she making some it, assumptions I would about you. Uh, against this woman that I've never seen before, I don't know if I should call her or not. That's basically how. That's basically the difference between read and you know. That's that's the difference in read, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right, and I think that you know you, you, it likely will make sense for you to trust your instincts when you are playing against those you know, recreational players or other people where you just sort of feel like you have a very solid. Uh, sense of of what they're doing. I mean, there can be cases where a computer can wrong. still help yeah, you. I mean, maybe she's maybe she is playing GTO and I didn't know it. You know, and maybe she's the you know playing. Maybe Kristen Bricknell taught her everything. You know, taught her GTO. <laughs> right. Oh, you shove with with all these ace suited aces and you shove with all these kings. Well, if I knew that she knew that, then I would obviously call with the ace ten suited. But you know, I'm thinking that you know, I mean, in the old days women didn't. I mean, you know, they 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 called you a lot but they didn't shove on you a lot if they shoved on you they showed you aces and kings so i guess that's my old school mentality remembering the old days and you know and saying you know women that you don't know if they're shoving they're more likely to have a big hand and i know when i shoved when in the old days i used to have the nuts too, you know i didn't shove with, i didn't shove with six i'm going to raise with six seven but i didn't shove with it you know for the most part uh you know i mean obviously vanessa selps uh destroyed that image for women you know uh, it's uh you know if she shoved on you you know she could have deuce three she could have anything um but yeah in general the women i mean i remember playing those women's tournaments with vanessa subs one year uh and vanessa was raising every hand she's like why aren't you raising every hand why aren't you doing what i'm doing you know she's like this is you know this is so easy you know all these women just you know they never raise you unless they have it i'm like yeah well i don't know you know <laughs> Uh, but it was true. I mean, most of them were very passive, and they would call you with a lot of hands, and you know mm. they would beat you with a lot of hands. But uh, for the most part, if they shoved on you, they seemed to have a better hand than what you, you know. Than I mean, these days though, I, I played a women's tournament recently, and that was not the case at all. You know, I mean, they would get, you know, they were playing, you know, like, uh, you know, more like, um, uh, you know, more aggressively and more, more wider range than than I was used to back in the old days. But, you know, I'm just saying, you know, a lot of it is feel and read and, um, you know, obviously a kid in sunglasses that's 20 years old that's raising every hand, you're going to play differently than a woman that you've never seen before, you know, right? Yeah, and I would think against the the kid in the sunglasses might be the, the place where your instincts would be less, not that they wouldn't be useful at all, but where, you know, looking at how a solver might handle that situation would maybe... I guess just give you some ideas for like new yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. When they do. call me, with, when they call me with certain hands, when they play certain hands, you know, a lot of times I'm surprised by the way they played their, their, you know, certain hands and ranges and stuff like that. I, I expected them to be a little bit more predictable than they were, and they mm -hmm. were had a wider range and and playing me differently than 
than what I was used to. So obviously that does, um, yeah, that does change my th- my thinking. And right, if I play GTO strategy against these GTO guys, then maybe that's fine. But you know, I didn't. You know, I never really knew how to play GTO against them, and they were playing a different way than what I was used to. You know. Yeah, and I think like one of the things that that, that kind of um tool will give you is it doesn't just sort of give you a a a specific strategy that it spits out but it also puts a number on these things so it'll say in a given situation like it expects calling with you know like in your ace 10 example it might expect that to be like very marginally profitable and then there's some hands that it think you obviously like queens or something it's going to consider a very profitable call and then there's other hands that are like you know like it it thinks it's like a terrible call to call with king three offsuit or something and so if it's only going to make you, if it's not printing, it doesn't matter as much. Yeah, and I think it kind of gives you a sense of like if you do so, like you know, if if it were the sort of thing where Ace Ten, it expects Ace Ten to be a very profitable call, and you're thinking, oh, I would never call with that. You know, you at least need a much stronger sense. And I mean, I again, like I agree with you that there certainly are people where I would feel fine, you know, making that fold. But you know, I think you want to have a sense of like, okay, this is I'm making a big deviation here, so I need to feel pretty confident about this. Versus if it's a hand that's already on the margins as far as the solver is concerned, then I like that's the place where i feel a lot sure. more comfortable if i'm folding jacks on 10 big blinds that's a, that's a bigger problem than folding ace 10 suited for 20 big blinds yeah and i think like there's probably a lot of places where you already have a sense of where that cusp is and you know when it comes to like all in preflop spots those aren't as, as difficult to get a sense of but when it comes to you know whether or not you're going to continuation bet a flop or like whether you're going to check raise a flop or something like that you know i think finding some of the more unconventional you know what should i be three betting the turn with uh just like some some plays that don't come up quite as often or it's, it's a little less intuitive to figure out like what yeah. is the, the right strategy that those are the places where i found computer assistance to be most helpful okay yeah i mean i'm sure it was, it's good to know it you know especially these days you know if you don't know what some of them people are doing or how or what the math says you know you're probably you know not as competitive so it makes sense to understand or study it as much as uh, makes you know whether you use it, whether you implement it or not is one another is a different story. Right. Yeah. I think that's you know one thing that bugs me about how people often talk about solvers and things is they'll say game theory says I'm supposed to do this. So well, I mean, game theory is not telling you to do anything. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just an output. What you choose to do with it is up to you. So I think you know, you really just want to look at it as like you can't just follow a chart tool. every time. You never be a winning player just looking at a chart and making new decisions from a chart. I, I mean, know. I think that if if you could actually look at a chart for every situation, I think you would be a winning. Like I, I think like a, 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 if you were truly playing against one of these solvers, I think like I think it would be basically anyone in the world. No, I didn't say playing against a solver. I said if you're actually just playing by a chart and nothing else, playing against everybody, just the same way, you know, you're probably not going to be a great player, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like a lot of things that you're doing that are going to be better than what a solver would do in a. In, in a given situation, um, because you are doing things to adapt to mistakes that, that opponents are making, then a solver is just not um, not designed to do that. I mean, if you're a great player just by playing like that, wouldn't, why wouldn't you know? If, if, then everyone's playing that like that would be a great player, right? I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that maybe like like I think there's aren't a lot of opportunities for playing. Like if you were playing a super high roller or something, you know, I think there wouldn't be a ton of opportunities um, for you to. There wouldn't be a lot of people making those really big mistakes. No, for you I'm talking about regular those. tournaments. I mean, I'm talking about being a great player in a regular tournament where, so yeah. if they're just if they're not adjusting to their player to their to their players and how they're playing, you know, I mean, that's the, I think that's the mistake they made against me was that they weren't adjusting to how I was playing. You know, they were playing their whatever solve strategy or whatever, but they weren't adjusting to the fact that I'm not three betting you light. You know, so your four bet there sucks. You right. Know? Right. <laughs> you know, they were they they were just you know they they were playing according to a chart when they should have been playing me the way I was playing them. You know, which is kind of trying to figure out what's going on. You know. Right, and I, I think the, the very best players, uh, and this is certainly what I aspire to, is they're they're playing an amalgamation of those things. You know, they they have a sense of. I think this is probably what a solver would do here, but then they're making a, an active choice of, you know, I, I'm I'm deliberately going to do something different from that, and I have a sense, like I know that I'm deviating, I have a sense of why, I have a sense of um, how much of a deviation it is. Right. I just wish that they did, the charts didn't exist at all because you <laughs> right, yeah. get out at the table on your own and whatever, you know, you're the, you know. <laughs> Who cares what the what the computer would do? <laughs> right. No, I I agree with that, and I think it, I mean it's just it's it's privileging a very different skill than what 
was required, you know, at the time that you were becoming very successful, like you know, now being being good with computers and being good with studying with computers is like one of the most important poker skills that there was. And I imagine that was like almost or entirely irrelevant at the time that I mean, I guess Andy Block was doing a little bit about that, but like sure. not very many yeah. people were doing that. Yeah. In that era. So I, I liked it better because that's what I knew and that's what I did, you know, and now everyone's doing all this other stuff and, you know, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, I understand why, you know, I understand that, you know, it makes sense, you know, if you can become a, a good player overnight or not overnight, but by studying all these things, it makes sense to do it because mm-hmm. you're not going to have 30 years of experience, you know? So, um, and you know, it just doesn't seem fair that people just come in with a strategy <laughs> like 30 years, they come with a strategy that that's competitive, you know, off the, off the cuff or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think, I mean, I, I know you mentioned kind of feeling like poker is, is less fun now. I'm, I'm sure that's part of it. I mean, I imagine part of it is just anything gets less fun when you've been doing it for 30 years. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it depends. You know, sometimes it gets hard of it. But I mean, you know, there's always new challenges. But yeah, I mean, obviously you don't have the same motivation and drive and hunger that you did. Eye of the Tiger when I was, you know, my, my you know 1995 when I first started playing and then, you know, 30 years later, I'm not going to have quite the same uh, enthusiasm, I guess. Yeah. How surprised, I mean, if, if you went back in time and, and told, you know, 1990s Kathy, right, you're still going to be playing poker 30 years later. Uh, is, is she surprised by that? Honestly, I don't think so, because I didn't play. I, I liked playing. I mean, I enjoyed it, you know, and I always thought it was, you know. Um, so, no, back then I would have wanted to play probably, you know, all my life. <laughs> Well, mission accomplished or so far so good anyway <laughs> yeah <laughs> what um i mean do you have like goals or i guess kind of like what's uh you're just still still having fun with it um you know i guess the goal would be to uh continue to be successful you know maybe win a few bracelets or win or at least you know i mean i don't i never really thought about it in terms of bracelets to be honest you know I, I think about it in terms of going and playing my best game, being competitive and trying to win money and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and have, you know, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, it would be nice to win some tournaments. That'd be fun again to win some more tournaments. <laughs> winning, winning tournaments is more fun than just playing tournaments. Right. So if I were winning tournaments, I think that that would be the goal because that would make it even, that would, that would spark the enthusiasm again. Is there anything that you would recommend kind of outside of poker, just, uh, books you enjoy music you enjoy tv show and anything that you would uh sort of encourage people to uh to take in uh yeah i would say anything by dale carnegie or napoleon hill uh i know definitely good things and there's so many different things that i that i that i look at and read and you know just but i would say that that probably um positive thinking you know uh how to win friends and influence people you know stephen covey those kinds of things are probably you know, people lose sight of that sometimes. So I think those are, you know, to, to kind of help you with goal setting and, and knowing how to deal with people, uh, skills that I was not always the best at, honestly. But <laughs> good, good ones to know for sure. You know, if I could go back and, and, and really study those books and, and, and live by it, I think I would have even had more success and, and, uh, and had more friends and all that stuff. So, you know, it makes sense to read some help, self-help books and, you know, seven habits kind of thing, you know, just to, just to, uh, learn how to deal with, with life. <laughs> Yeah, I used to really turn my nose up at that sort of thing, and I'm I'm coming around on it. Yeah, I'm the opposite. I mean, I used to always read it. Now I don't read it very often, to be honest. <laughs> I'm trying to study videos and stuff, of you know, more than reading old, you know, reading books. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of videos. I can't believe how much stuff there is on YouTube, and even free stuff, and your training site, and other training sites. You know, so much out there that you know it's almost overwhelming. You know how much information is out there right now. Yeah, no, I, I think it's quite literally overwhelming. Like a lot of what yeah. I do as, as a coach is kind of helping people um, focus on on what's important, right? Like it's it's not like there's a, a dearth. I mean, even very good free information like on, on YouTube and those sorts of places. So you know, I think a lot of it is like figuring out how to how to navigate all that and and both like what's important in terms of how you spend your study time and also in terms of what you're thinking about when you're actually at the table. I mean, you probably don't have this quite as much, but I know for a lot of people, it's just like there's a swirl of all these different concepts and they've picked them up, you know, from YouTube videos and podcasts and all these different things. And then when they're actually playing, they have like 30 seconds to make a decision and they don't know how to like, which of these things should I be thinking about? Yeah, exactly. Um, anything else you want to leave people with? Anything we, uh, we, we, I didn't know enough to ask? <laughs> uh, well, I'm not sure. <laughs> <I just laughs> the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it was, it was really fun talking to you. I, I appreciate you sharing all this. I don't know. Uh, I mean, maybe we'll be in the same place in, in Las Vegas. I would love to see the scrapbook of yours sometimes is, is where, I'm, where I'm going with this. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I was fascinated I, I, I by that. Pictures and put a few on Twitter. So I, put, I already posted a few pictures on Twitter, but oh, cool. uh, there was a lot of stuff I didn't put on there that I was, uh, yeah, that, you know, it's it cool looking at the old, at the old days. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I must've missed that. I'm going to go through your Twitter as soon as we get off the, the call here and, and take a look yeah, at that. Media photos. Yeah. Media yeah. Photos. Yep. All right. Well, it was nice talking to you and, uh, yeah, hope to get the chat to you again. Uh, maybe give me some uh, poker tips or a little more, uh, insight on where I should, you know, go, which videos I should watch next. Yeah. I look forward to it. All right, thanks. All right, take care. Bye. Devotion of a car